Right, a long reading, church, but a good one. A good one. How to do church planting with the Apostle Paul. Amazing. What stood out? Something must have stood out for you. Otherwise, I will pack up my bags and go home and uh, watch the sport. What stood out for you in this incredible chapter? Just two or three of you. I did warn you. I warned them, didn't I? I did warn them. Plenty of warning. It's not just a Bible story to forget. This is the main thing we're here for. Audrey. Yes. He went to them. Yeah. 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 So Paul goes to where the people are. Yeah. I might mention something about that later as well. Yes. And he, he knew he could be put to death and he... You know, he, he believed Paul's word. When they hadn't run away, that bought him the, the, the moment for the jailer to listen, right? That was good, wasn't it? I saw another hand. Huh? And the whole family. It says that several times in this chapter alone. Liz, last one. It's remarkable, isn't it? They were chained to the, to the, in the deepest, darkest prison cell, their feet in stocks, and they're singing songs and praying. It's remarkable. It's the actual response of actual Christians in actual terrible situations. Okay, brilliant. So we've read scripture, we've prayed. This is the preamble. This is Paul's first encounter in this major Roman colony city of Philippi. It takes place between the, the years of 50 and 53 AD. So just a few years after the resurrection of Christ. And Paul is on his second missionary journey, which is between chapters 16 and, eight, and chapter 18, verse 23. He's doing this rounds on his second journey here. And this is obviously the background to uh, the church that began with Lydia and the jailer. They are the first converts in this place, in Europe, under Paul's ministry, at this time. This is hugely significant time for them. So next week, we will begin with Philippians proper uh, next week uh, for the next few weeks. It's an amazing letter, by the way. You get, a, you get a real sense of the occasion of Paul's heart for the people, his love of the gospel, uh, the, the sheer fact that he put into practice what he preached. He rejoiced in the prison. And when he writes to them, he's in another prison 10 years later. And he's telling them to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Somebody said to me, it doesn't matter who it was. Are they here? Yeah, they might be here. They said, Philippians is my favorite letter. You'd better do it justice, Richard. <laughs> I'll try. No pressure, but I'll try. I'll try. So let's pick out some of the details from Acts 16. Very quickly, verses 1 to 5 is the fascinating decision. We didn't read this. This is a whole other point as well about uh, Paul's Timothy to, uh, decision to circumcise Timothy. That's for gospel uh, progress, and we'll come to that another time. It's clear as we read through from verses 6 to 10 that Paul does not have a set pre-planned itinerary. He doesn't know where he's going, or he has an idea, but God says no at the right time. If you look at the map... You can see that you've got Thrace and Mycenae and Asia, 
Bithynia and Pontus. Paul was forbidden from going north and east and south. Instead, he goes over to Troas, there top left, and crosses the sea. Philippi is virtually the top right, uh, top left uh, town up there. So he's forbidden from exploring these places in now what is modern day Turkey. So they travel through these different regions, and as I said, notice the role of the Holy Spirit directing and leading Paul as he goes. The Holy Spirit stopped Paul from speaking in Asia. Fascinating. Why would God stop someone like Paul from preaching the gospel to people that need him? Why? It's fascinating. Well, Paul actually goes there in his third missionary journey. They do not get away lightly, I can promise you that. That happens in the third missionary journey from chapter 18 onwards. But now they come to Mycenae. And I love this in verse 7. Verse 7 says, The Spirit of Jesus also prevented them from traveling further east. So there's a ver already the, 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 the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a high view of who Jesus is. It was the Spirit of Christ which is to say the Holy Spirit of Christ is now speaking. They can't go south to Asia. They can't go east to Bithynia. And so after these interruptions, Paul is tired and he has a sleep. And guess what God likes to do to people who sleep? Give them dreams. This is what he does. He has a night vision. And it's a man, this is in verses 9 to 10, a man is begging him, come over to Macedonia, come over and help us. We need you, Paul, here. We need the gospel. Come over and help us. So that sets the direction in God's plan. Not south, not east, but westward they go. That reminded me of the town north of here called Westward Ho. Westward Ho they go to Philippi. Paul and Silas now cross the sea and they end up in Philippi. The Jews weren't a large enough group at the time. And as you point out, Audrey, earlier, you had to have a minimum of 10 people in a town to set up a synagogue. There's clearly no, I mean, less than 10 Jewish men in Philippi, a major Roman town. That's incredible for a start. So clearly there were no Christians yet. And only the official gods and temples could be allowed to be set up in Philippi. So anyone of the foreign religions, Judaism and now Christianity, had to go outside the city gates to the river where the Jewish women had met to pray. And there he sat down and shared the gospel. That's what Paul did. He sat down and spoke to the women. It's very interesting, isn't it, that both Jesus and Paul uh, Jesus and Paul following him broke those taboos of speaking first to women. It's astonishing. I, I, I still, you know, I'm a 21st century dude really, but I, I can't get my head around why that would be a problem, but it was a problem back in the day. How powerful is the gospel now breaking down the barriers outside the city walls where they crucified Jesus, by the way, outside the city walls talking not to men, but to, a, but to women outside the city walls where he's talking to Lydia, most likely a former slave now set free, a very uh, successful businesswoman in what is now the, the, the selling of the famous purple cloth that she used to make. 
She, Paul shared the gospel with her. She believed her and she was ready to hear and receive the gospel. The ground was ripe. The seeds were bearing fruit. And so she believed and her whole household were baptized. And so the first church in Europe is born. Wow. So significant. All Paul needs now is an annoying demon possession, a severe beating with imprisonment, a repentant jailer, and a very humbled and apologetic legal system. And there you go. These are the rules for church planting, according to Paul. You couldn't make it up. I want you to notice the repeated claim in this chapter as well. When Lydia believed, her entire family were also baptized. Verse 15. When the jailer believed, it says it twice in verse 31 and 33, he and his entire family were baptized when they heard the word of the gospel. It's quite a claim to make. Verse 25 captures some of the heartbeat that we will see in Paul's letter to the Philippians. So his feet are fastened in the stocks. Notice it says, in the inner chamber, he's deep inside the prison, verse 24. And yet, he's probably thinking, but I had a night vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Here he is, no sunlight, scraps of food and water, feet in stocks, in prison, in Philippi, where there are hardly any Jewish men. What to do? Where's the plan? Where's the book on how to church plant? What do you do? What's the first thing a Christian should do in any circumstance, church? Pray and praise. Every single time. Pray and praise. It's exactly what Paul does. It's the hardest thing to do. But they pray, Paul and Silas, and sing their hymns. And do you know what they're doing while they do this? Gospelizing the other prisoners. Oh, praise God. They're gospelizing the other prisoners. When people hear you pray, church, when people hear you sing your hymns to God, what are we doing? We're gospelizing our friends and neighbors. When your neighbors in the street where you live saw you coming to church, and most of your neighbors will know, yeah, they're the religious family, they go to church. I reckon there's something about they're glad that you do this, even though it might not be for them, even though it is for them, they think it isn't for them, but it is for them. But they're glad that you do it because they know that a world without people doing this would be a far, far, far worse world, wouldn't it? And so you go, in a sense, for yourself, but you go for them, for that community, and they know you do this. You're gospelizing them. Isn't that good? You're telling the truth just by coming here, just by going to church. You're saying, Christ is what is important. So in that sense, in this sense, and in the sense that I've just outlined, evangelism never stops. You evangelized your neighbors this morning just by getting out of the house, getting in your car, and coming here. To some people, they saw you do this. Evangelism never stops. Prison, visions, distractions, beatings, chains, darkness. Nothing stops the Christian from praise and prayer, maybe except beheading. That probably would stop it, as it happened to Paul 
15 or so years after this experience. Nothing stops the Christian from praising church. A few weeks ago, probably a couple of months ago, somebody asked me this question. Does the reality of evil ever challenge or threaten your faith, Richard? Or when evil visits you, does it mean that God suddenly doesn't exist or that your faith is shaken? My answer is no. But it's still a good question. For the Christian knows and believes the gospel and trusts in the word of God. We know we live in a fallen world that is capable of brutality and evil. We know this, Genesis 3, and the fall of humankind. We know that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 tells us. We know that sin crouches at the door, just waiting for you to open the door. And what will sin do? It will pounce. Genesis 4 verse 1. And we know that we will be persecuted for our faith. Jesus himself tells us in many places, not least John 15. But 1 Peter 4.12 says this. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you. As though this is a strange thing. <laughs> Ever had a fiery trial, church? Yeah, most of us, if not all of us have. Some of us are going through one now. Don't be surprised. Why? Because people of the book are people of reality. God's reality. God shines the light. God is with us. He's made his promises to never leave or forsake. And so we sing and we praise and we pray, don't we? So do not be surprised at the fiery trials. So no, I said to my friend, the reality of evil when it comes really close to our doors never, ever, ever disproves the existence of God. In fact, the reality of our pain when we're in these moments is evidence for the existence of God. In the sense that if it matters to us and to our family when evil comes close, when we're put in the stocks in prison, beaten, publicly shamed, we know that it matters because we're made in the image of God. And let me say this, if there is no God, then it doesn't matter. If there is no God, there's no such thing as evil, just social constructs of evil. Who gets to decide that? But we know that there is a God. We know that we live in a moral universe, church. We know that we are accountable to a holy God who's called us to be salt and light. And all we've got to do is just make sure we've got plenty of gospel seeds in our bag to keep scattering wherever we go. That's all we've got to do. And God will do the rest. He will open and close doors as he sees fit. So no, it is only the existence of God get, that gives any sense of meaning to suffering and beatings and persecutions and imprisonments. I read a, a wonderful, one of my literary heroes is Mark Twain. And I, I know that some of you will have enjoyed his work from a previous century, not too long ago, mind. He said this, I love this. The two most important days in your life, the day you were born and gotcha. 
No, not the day you die. Possibly, it's tied to it. That's good. I'll tell you what Mark Twain said. Two most important days in your life. The day that you were born and the day you find out why. So it's linked. Now that's cool, isn't it? Because we live in a world of meaning. And when you find out the reason why you, you even exist, that's the second most important day. The fact that you exist is also pretty important, right? And this is all because of God and what he's done and what he said. So that's why Paul and Silas sang and prayed. They weren't, by the way, I said when I was reading this, I thought, yeah, when, yeah you're born and then you die. And I thought that was it as well. So we're all in the same boat on that one. So anyway, that's why Paul and Silas prayed. They weren't being religious or just doing what religious people do, singing and praying because they're just desperate and scared of the dark. No, they were doing the thing that Christians have always done and still do around the world today with millions of people, uh, millions of Christians being persecuted for their faith. These guys know how to sing and pray, church. It's astonishing. But Paul and Silas were being what Christians are, rejoicing insofar as they share Christ's suffering. Insofar as they share Christ's suffering. So when Paul and Silas were in that prison, what they had decided to do, they had committed in determined faithful obedience to follow Christ no matter what, no matter what. To follow Christ, even in chains. Uh, their mind must have been so transformed, their heart must have been so renewed that they felt they could face anything. I reckon Paul was utterly fearless, probably giving courage just in his manner and his presence to Silas, who was chained with him. And the mind and heart must have been in sync as well as they relied on the Holy Spirit to lead. And so our hearts and our minds... A new heart, God says, I will give you. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul would write to the Romans. Are in sync as we hear the Holy Spirit leading us in the way that we should go. So when the Spirit leads us, what happens, church? The foundations of the prison shake. Doors fling open. Chains fall off. That's an obvious metaphor for what Christ does. The foundation of your life shakes on the day you're born again and discover the meaning for your existence and chains fall off and doors that held you in in prison what do they do mysteriously open and God invites you to come through out of the darkness into the light setting aside the chains of sin that held you down walking into freedom with Christ this is so obvious what Luke, the writer of this chapter, is saying here. So this is the gospel. Doors open, chains broken. That's the gospel. We're chained up in sin. We confess Christ in prayer and praise, and God saves us. Oh, by the way, he'll also save the people around you, like the jailer and his family. Lydia, a woman, a freed slave, a businesswoman, and a jailer. And now the Philippi church. Praise God. So when Paul writes 
to the church 10 or so years later, maybe a bit more, 12 or 13 years later, after this event, when he puts quill to parchment, he's writing from another prison cell. He is reminding them of the things that need reminding, the most important things, that Christ is in you the hope of glory, that he who calls you is faithful. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is Paul's message to the church that grew and grew after his departure. And so the church in Europe and Philippi is born. One of the words that I was given at my baptism in a little NIV Bible that Rachel got me, which I use upstairs, because I study with an ESV, so sometimes I forget, don't I? And I suddenly realize that you're all NIV here, and I'm still reading from this, and it can be a little bit confusing. But I have an NIV, and I go to that still to check to make sure that some of the words are you know, not too confusing. And inside that Bible, in 1991, Rachel wrote the words from Philippians 1, verse 6. I didn't have a clue what it meant then, but I jolly well know what it means now. It means this. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning, your life has meaning. Christ has broken the chains that bind you. He has flung open the doors where the darkness reigned and the light floods in. He has shaken the foundations of the world of sin. Sin, death, and the devil have all been defeated in the cross of Christ. Is the cross of Christ sufficient for these things, church? Yes, and amen. The cross is sufficient for all these things and more. Paul knew the secret of Psalm 56, 10 to 11. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And so I finish with a quote from a 19th century American Baptist preacher who some of you may have heard of called A.C. Dixon. And he said this, when we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit, we get what the Holy Spirit can do. And that, Taunton Baptist Church, is how you plan to church. Let's pray. All glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Father, sink the truth of your word, the power of the gospel, the love of God, the grace of Christ, deep, deep, deep into our hearts, I pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, who is sufficient for all these things. Amen. God bless you, church.